0: Welcome to the Outrageous Impact Show, with me, your host, Patrick Golshouski. My guest today is Madeline Postman. Madeline, how are you?
1: I'm great, thanks, Patrick.
0: Now, Madeline is director at Grain Sustainability, which is an organisation that helps businesses become champions for the planet, and uh, really looking forward to our discussion uh madeline has been a former art director at gucci group she was the uk md at lidar and is on the uk steering uh panel for one percent for the planet she's also a regular media commentator so i'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about so has lockdown been uh has, has lockdown been a sort of a, a, a paradise or a sort of uh or or a nightmare or somewhere in in between
1: i've seen it more in a positive way. Um... I've been very fortunate that we haven't been affected um, directly in terms of being ill or losing people, um, you know, the the horrible side of the pandemic. Um, But we've got quite a good um, setup here at the house in terms of work, um, also for the kids uh, to have their own space for school, um, also now that the school's online. Um, And it actually gave me, uh, you know, the initial lockdown uh, last March, um, Gave us a chance to step back and really look at what we we're doing for work as well. It just gave you know everyone a chance to look at what what they're doing and how we're spending our time, um, and it sort of led into what we'll probably be talking about a little bit further in the podcast. Um, but I really appreciated having you know being at home. Um, I live in the Chilterns uh, in Buckinghamshire, so it's nice and green around here, and having more time with the kids and with my husband. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been overall quite positive, I have to say
0: yeah and i think you're so right you know it's it's hard not to be overwhelmed by the scale of the loss at the moment you know it's it's you know we've, we've just passed in the uk for for listeners that are outside of the uk you know the the, the sort of grim milestone of a hundred thousand deaths and it's easy to sort of say well you know it's a it's hundred thousand people but that is a hundred thousand individuals with, you know, four to ten people and, and often many, many more that are sort of impacted by those deaths. So it's been a it's been a seismic collective trauma, I think, on on the national psyche here in the UK.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously it's changed, you know, day-to-day life for for everybody around the world. And it's it's strange. I mean, this sounds maybe a bit more like harder, but when you look at sort of TV and movies that have been filmed before the pandemic and people are sort of hugging and you just think no that's that's wrong like just you know the basic way that we interact with people has has changed that sort of instinctive way of of um being able to get close to somebody or not to get uh, close to somebody
0: Yeah, it's so true. And I was listening this morning with with very envious ears, if that's not a weird way to describe it, to a a sort of report from New Zealand where they were saying that that because they have, like, you know, no COVID there now, that essentially they've been having sort of 30,000 person sort of, uh, you know, gigs happening and this sort of thing. And it just... I remember so well that feeling of being in a in a big crowd and I'm actually quite scared of being in big crowds but also that sort of euphoria of being outdoors of being you know listening to live music of being surrounded by other people of being in a collective you know good experience rather than just a collective sort of nightmare and also a bit of an unequal nightmare as well because I think you know like you say we've also been incredibly fortunate not to be sort of Physically touched by the pandemic, and you know, there are others that have just really found this, you know, a nightmare on so many levels.
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I we'll, I'll be glad to see the back of it.
0: Yeah, I know. It's um, I wonder. You know, you've you've been involved in in the sort of sustainability field in in the struggle for climate justice for for, for a while, Madeline. And I wonder what sort of parallels you draw between covid and the sort of the, the the looming arrival on our shores you know albeit having arrived many decades ago on on sort of uh, you know further afield shores in the global south of the, of the climate emergency and and sort of what what sort of parallels you draw between the two if any
1: um well, this was you know similar to the pandemic um the climate emergency affects everybody and you know of course in the in the global north it's it's easier in the short term to sort of ignore it and um, not not feel the effects. But it's, you know, it, it's unquestionable um, and and we're all feeling it more and more. And the, the, the need um, to make radical change has, has certainly come to the forefront. And I think there's been a huge recognition of it over the past um, couple of years um, between, of course, here in the UK, uh, David Attenborough has a huge uh, impact um, and, uh, and Greta Thunberg. Um, worldwide has a has a big impact and it's just it's on it's on the agenda um, for for everybody around the world and you know in the, in the north uh, the global north we're uh, consuming more and creating more of the carbon emissions for example and and creating that impact which is then felt more in the global south but of course um, everybody feels it uh, worldwide
0: yeah fascinating and I mean Given your sort of professional experience, what sort of um, willingness are you seeing from, you know, both companies you work with and wider sort of corporate uh, sort of entities to actually engage with these issues, you know, not just in terms of risk to bottom line, but also in terms of those sort of wider issues around climate justice?
1: Uh, Well, it's really interesting because we've seen uh, a huge, huge amount of um, interest in in companies changing. And it's, I think previously it used to be more about doing the right thing um, and it felt more sort of voluntary. And now we're seeing that um, people and of course people run businesses. So people and and businesses are, and government, you know, every um, every sort of institution, um, they're really seeing that it's, it's not an option uh, to change and different sorts of drivers from, as I mentioned, just, you know, doing the right thing, um, to financial drivers, uh, knowing that if, uh, you know, for example, if a, a company or a bank is invested in fossil fuels, that's going to get more and more risky and more of a sort of bad investment uh, as time goes on. And, uh, and also things like um, even as seemingly simple as, let's say a construction company that's not invited to pitch uh, for a project unless it has a net zero plan. Um, so very sort of practical um, issues where people need to raise their standards um just to just to sort of exist and function uh, commercially
0: so it's almost as if sort of a, an acknowledgement and a response to to, to to the climate crisis is becoming a sort of an initial sort of without which nothing you know some businesses won't even be able to operate unless you actually have a a plan in place to how you're responding you don't even get to the starting line as it were
1: Exactly. It's sort of, it's not a sort of um, hygiene factor anymore. It's, it's really become essential.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Now tell me how, how did this, you know, sort of impact your decision to sort of, you know, move from, you know, the, 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 the rarefied air, if I can, you know, it's how I imagine it. I imagine it's all sort of beautiful ateliers and sort of like, you know, design shop designer clothing of Gucci into sort of agency world and now into running your own shop, Madeline. I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey and kind of, you know, what, if anything, has been the sort of golden thread connecting those things?
1: Um, Well, recently, uh, having made this this shift from essentially from branding and design and communications into more of a sustainability focus, um, I I looked back and even when I first started university, I went went to Brown University in in the US, Um, even when I went there, I, I sort of walked into the environmental studies department. Um, and then ended up um, instead majoring in art and uh, so it was history of art and in visual arts which is essentially sort of uh, fine art and um, it's you know cr- creating art um, so that was um, about 30 years ago and, um, and then from then I sort of went into design um, and then ended up at Gucci and then when I left Gucci I also wanted to um, the sort of values of fashion and luxury you know i wasn't interested in fashion and luxury essentially um, and there wasn't um there wasn't much sustainability and luxury at the time now there's there's much more and even um caring group that owns gucci now is is um is quite good on the sustainability front um as as is burberry um who was a client after i left gucci um so I, so I left gucci started a um an agency uh with a friend called vivian chapola and we we um had again, mostly luxury uh, fashion clients. Um, <laughs> I left that in um, around 2007 or so and started another small studio called, um, called Mattomat. Um, and I wanted to focus on sort of environmentally friendly um, design and clients, clients for goods. So I, l- I read books um, like Authenticity and I think there's one called uh, Good Business perhaps. Um, and just sort of was looking into that whole area that now I think we would call um, purpose or purpose-led business, um, but again, there just wasn't a lot of it around that I just felt like it was really hard to survive as a small design studio um, with that kind of restriction on on clients. Um, so essentially, it, you know, it, again, it, I didn't follow that path so closely. Um, and then over the years, uh, then my my husband uh, Christoph Gebert and I started working together. Um, as uh, as Grain, as a Grain creative, which um, he started in two thousand and two, and then essentially we were sort of working together um, more or less from that time through the days of Vivian Chapola and Madama and then finally in two thousand and ten, we just said, well, let's let's actually put these two design studios together and and keep keep the name Grain uh, for both of them. Um, And then over the years, uh, we worked with uh, many different clients, Um, still, you know, lots of luxury and fashion, um, as well as education and property and technology, uh, predominantly in branding and also uh, design, digital design, um, packaging. So lots of really fun and interesting projects. Um, And then we merged with with LIDAR, which is an international communications consultancy in 2018. Um, And then from there, we expanded into um, more, you know, broad communications, advocacy, and then started, you know, at that point, it started to come a bit full circle, fin- you know, finally after <laughs> decades in terms of um, working more in sustainability um, and doing some sustainability consulting and communications um, for different clients and working with international organizations. Um, also in, for example, the healthcare fields, uh, like the Novo Nordisk Chemophilia Foundation, um, also Oak Foundation, for example. So feeling like it was, um, you know, the work was then focusing more on this sort of uh, purpose or, you know, doing good in a very broad sort of slightly generic uh, way um, just in terms of um, uh, keeping them under that umbrella. Um, But it's, you know, it was was great then to see that uh, what we were doing rather than sort of branding a, let's say a, a gold jewelry company, which is, it's really fun, but it, you know, doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of purpose if it's not a particularly um, you know ethical company or sustainable have sustainable aims, for example um, so it was it was just great um, finally working for um, some some businesses where I really felt like, oh this is you know my, my values are really aligned with with the clients um, and of course, you know my values were aligned with clients all, all the way all along, but it wasn't they were more or less aligned depending on on the client. Um, and now with the decision to um, to essentially demerge, merge um, just in terms of Christoph and me, um, from LIDAR and to uh, go back to grain, uh, repositioned as grain sustainability, it just, it feels amazing, you know, spending my whole day working with, with different people on uh, creating a better um, positive impact uh, in terms of social and environmental aims. So it's just, um, it, you know, it's just been like a revelation um, to, to just to focus on that um, and to have every, to just really want to help every single company um, improve. So it's, um, yeah, I'm very happy to be at this point.
0: Fascinating, Madeline. And I, I, I'm i struck by what you said about, you know, one of your one of your earlier sort of um, agencies and, and sort of, you know, you feeling like there was a sort of like there was a sort of limiter or a bar on, on in terms of purpose, sort of restricting the, the possible growth and success of that agency and now sort of coming back to um you know your own small but mighty if i can describe it like that sort of you know agency again sort of specifically focused on purpose and sort of purposes time and and sustainability's time perhaps having come and i'm kind of um reminded a bit of um there's a, a a commentator i'm sure you've seen on on linkedin called mark duval and he basically comments on like agencies and he was saying that You know, 2021, one of the trends he's seeing is just the sort of rise of small niche uh, independent agencies that are then sort of being able to go and bid for bigger and bigger projects because clients are just more open to working with people with real deep expertise in fields. And it must be quite sort of, um, you know, gratifying that finally something that you realized a number of years ago has sort of finally reached the mainstream, as it were.
1: Uh, definitely. And I suppose, you know, I do look back, um, you know, I think, oh, well, what if I had um, done environmental studies instead of, uh, you know, visual arts and and art history? And you, know, you sort of go back and think, well, what, what would have happened if I'd started this earlier? And of course, you can't go back and, and change the past, um, but it's, um, or, you know, look back at the uh, Rachel Carson Silent Spring, which was, I don't know the exact year, but it was um, 50s or 60s. Um, you know so it's quite a long time ago and people people have been ringing alarm bells for a, a long time um but it's so on one hand it's it's quite scary that it's taken this long for people to really wake up um but on the other hand you know it it has to happen at some point so at least it's happening now and it and it does have a huge momentum um and people people realize that it's you know it's been it's gone from uh, global warming to Climate change to climate crisis to climate emergency, and um, you know, sometimes I think if we say climate crisis all the time, will people get a bit numb to that? Um, but you know, again, at the same time, there's a general awareness that that we need to change, and things are changing um, as well. So it's yeah, so it's sort of a, a mixed um, mixed interpretation of that, I suppose.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, do you do you feel you have any regrets?
1: Um, no, I'm not, I mean, generally I'm not sort of a person for regret. And even this, this thought of, that I just was saying about, um, you know, what if I had done something, um, I think it's called the, the past conditional or something like that, which shouldn't exist (laughs) as a, as a, as a tense. Um, so no, I mean, on, on the other hand, it's the, I feel like I've got a lot of leverage now because of the, um, I've, I've created a, a certain profile. Uh, based on I probably started with uh, working at Gucci um and then recently i've I've been on the BBC uh, quite a few times uh talking about so initially it's about branding and and business um but you know that's it's now a platform to talk about anything really so it's um you know I feel like i've I've um built up this this profile where I can really use it as a um as a way to amplify the message and, and the messages about um, sustainability and the environment um, and, um, and the social side of sustainability as well.
0: And I mean, do you find um, you get pushback when you when you go out and, and make statements about this? Because I find, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people that perhaps are not as, as aware or perhaps even perhaps occasionally willfully sort of keeping their head in the sand about the, the climate you know situation the climate emergency that i often get quite a defensive reaction but i'd love to hear what your experience has been madeline
1: but that's a really uh, interesting question because it's something that um i've talked about quite a lot with um uh, w- with christoph my husband who i work with um and also with friends um with clients as well because it's sort of how do you pitch um how do you pitch the message whatever message it might be you know maybe it's um, you know, eat less meat, or maybe it's um, on an individual level uh, or, uh, you know, don't, don't fly or fly less, whatever the message is, you can imagine how many how many there are. Um, and there, I think there are different ways. So one is, you know, general education. If you tell people about um, the amount of plastic in the ocean and show them a, a picture of um, last night I was watching um, Climate Action Lab 3, um, action on Plastic um, is is the name of the the group, um, and and there was a picture of of a of a bird with its stomach completely full of plastic, and you know you see that and you just you do want to do something about it. Um, so I think there's a sort of one way in which is education. Um, the the sort of guilt way in um, won't you know it doesn't work very well. Um, I think we need to make people feel good about what they're doing. Um, and there is a huge amount of, uh, of optimism in, in this field. Um, I always thought if I focused on sustainability more, it would just be really depressing. Um, and I would just feel <laughs> awful all the time. Um, and it's actually not true. And that was one of the biggest surprises um, that I found. So you'll find that everyone working in the field. I mean, I want to say every single person is an optimist. I don't know if it's true, but in a way, to work in sustainability, you need to be an optimist because otherwise, you you wouldn't you wouldn't do anything about it. You just sit at home and sort of wait, wait for the world to end. Um, and um, and all of the solutions are out there. So in terms of the science and technology, um, everything is there, and it's the hurdles are really in the implementation, um, the politics, you know, getting getting things in in action. So the fact that every one of us as an individual or as a business um, can can do something and make a difference. You know, none of us is going to be perfect. Um, nobody's going to solve all of the problems. But by doing something about it, you're already improving. So, if, you know, if you fly one time less, you've, you've made an improvement. If you stop flying altogether, of course, it's a it's more of an improvement. But, um, you know, everything is is a contribution um, and it's I mean, you asked about how how to pitch it to people. So I said uh, yeah, education, I suppose there's different ways of saying, um, you know, we, we did a talk on sustainability labeling and consumer empowerment recently. And um, one of the uh, sort of findings that we were looking at is this the sort of peer, I'm gonna say peer pressure, it's probably not quite the right term, but it's um, one of the ways that uh, behavior can be nudged is through comparing behavior to to your peers. So, for example, if you have an electricity bill, it shows how much electricity you're using. Um, if on on the bill it shows what your what people in similar um, home you know home sizes are using, they're using more, they're using less. It just shows where you are on that scale, um, and it makes you you know it makes you a bit competitive, maybe or or go along with the crowd and saying, oh, I want I do want to use less less energy, or you know, ninety percent of your neighbors have switched to renewable, whatever that might be. Um, there's also a, a default. So for example, if you make um, renewable energy the default, then most people will stick with it. Um, let's, often renewable costs less, but let's say it costs more. Even if it is the default, um, or, sorry, if, even if it does cost more, if it's the default, then most people will, will just stick with it. Um, I suppose we're, we're also a bit <laughs> lazy as, a, as, a, as well as uh, optimistic.
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting. And I guess I I'd love to hear sort of what you do outside of work then to basically um relax. I, I, I get the sense that you're that you're not necessarily sedentary for very long, um, <laughs> Madeline, because I, I understand you're even writing a book at the moment as well. Yes. Or have written a book.
1: I'm writing a book, yes. Okay. Um tell me more. <laughs> so the book is called Sixteen Stories, um, and it's a, a narrative nonfiction. Uh so in the um, so another narrative nonfiction is In Cold Blood, for example, is one of the um, first sort of um, recognized as being in, in that genre of narrative nonfiction. Um, so it's based on my family. Um, so the 16 people um, of the 16 stories are my brother and me and our parents, our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Um, and they sort of, uh, because my brother and me, there's one woman and one man, it sort of neatly divides into half the people are women and half the people are men. Uh, in the story, and it's based in um, so the my family background is uh half uh chinese um and the the Chinese immigrants to the u s uh, were from essentially all in the eighteen hundreds um so they all immigrated quite quite early on um and then my on my father's side um, it's uh so, uh eastern Europe, well, so Jewish Europeans, so between uh, Poland and uh, Lithuania, and um, and they immigrated also in the, the late 1800s um, with well late 1800s the beginning of the 1900s. Um, so my my grandfather and his mother actually arrived in 1903 um, to the to New York. And um, so each chapter is one, is a particular person um, of the 16. And it's set, the first two chapters start in 2015. Um, so my, my chapter is first, and then my, bro- my brother's chapter uh, set in China where we were on a trip um, at the time, uh, sort of researching our, our roots there. Um, and then it goes back to 1895. Uh, so so uh, two great-grandfathers and one great-grandmother in 1895. So it's set in um, in China um and then in in Poland, um a place called w- V um, northwest of Warsaw. And um and then in uh where was the third one? Can't remember at the moment. Um and and then it goes through so eight, so 2015, 1895, and then uh, 1915, 1935. So it keeps going um every 20 years with sort of two or three people per um, per time, uh, per year, and it will end in uh, 1995. And it's so it's, it, it's generally about, um, so it's not sort of like, you know, granddad did this and granddad did that. It's, it's, it's meant to read as a, as a novel rather than a sort of, um, you know, boring fact, fact finding sort of exercise. Um, and so it talks about uh, the, the general themes are around immigration and culture um food uh family relationships um so there's uh one oh, yeah the other 1895 chapter is um a great grandmother giving birth in uh in new york city to one of my uh great uncles um wow so it's about you know giving birth as well there is, is in there which i um, imagine was
0: not as straightforward then as maybe it is now
1: um well it's um so I I gave uh, birth without any any pain relief, <laughs> um, so you know maybe that's uh, maybe that's similar. So it was actually um, you know it, I wrote down the, what it was like to give birth and then um, and then put that in in the words. It's it's all written in third person. Um, mm-hmm. So that became the story of of this of this great grandmother, um, and mm-hmm. it's also about the sort of the decisions. You know how does one how did the decisions of one generation affect the next generation? Um, so my great-grandfather had my, uh, one of my Chinese great-grandfathers had three children. So my grandfather and um, two great-great-aunts and, um, and they really spoiled my grandfather. Um, they were very strict with, with the great-aunts and they, um, but they just sort of let my grandfather sort of go to seed. He could just do whatever he wanted. Um, and I think that really impacted then the, you know, the further generations uh, after that. So it's sort of going into that um, exploration as well and keeping, you know, seeing where the stories interweave. So he, uh, this great-grandfather, Zhou Shung had a a chain of stores called the National Dollar Stores. Um, And he, many of the clothes in the, so it was a bit like a Woolworths. Um, So they had what they called dry goods. So uh, goods for the home and clothing as well. And the, the clothing was mostly um, made. It was made in the U.S., but it was mostly made in on the East Coast. Um, probably, you know, ninety percent by by Jewish immigrants, which is the other side of my family. Um, you know, who you know, some of whom were were working in in those um, those factories. So it's just it's sort of mind blowing to think that you know maybe one of my um, ancestors you know made a shirt that ended up in the other ancestor's shop, um, and it's sort of not what you know. It's not the typical thing that a Chinese American would have um this very successful line of stores um with all Chinese managers um so yeah I mean, there's a lot of really interesting uh detail in there that, that I'm writing about.
0: That sounds great and I'd love to to get your sense is is there one sort of piece of sort of um it's not dna but sort of like emotional dna that you think has sort of really passed down into your character or your personality that you can sort of trace back to any of your relatives madeline
1: um, well i think the the chinese and jewish sides um you know they're both very hardworking um cultures and communities and they also value education um quite a lot i was just reading in one of the 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 books, um, so I, I read a lot of uh, books for, for research for this for the for my book. Um, that it's sort of something that you when you when you emigrate, um, sometimes all that you have is your the knowledge in your head, um, and and that's one reason why um, education can become so so important. And of course, it's also you know for social mobility that uh, in the U.S. the generally um, you know the more Educated you are, the more social mobility you you can have. Um, and and of course, this there's comes back to this was a, a Protestant work ethic as well in, in the US um, of, of working hard. Um, but so this um, it's funny because you've got the in my family that both sides of the sort of um, you know, very successful entrepreneur. Um and then and then the, the sort of hard-working um people who weren't. They, they weren't entrepreneurs. They would they would just have they might have their own business um, as a as a tailor, for example. But they certainly weren't opening sort of forty stores across America. Um, so I, I I would like to think that both sides of that um, came came down to my my values. Of course, this is also through the generations of um, for my father. You know, edu- um, education is very important. We even moved. We were living in in Reno, Nevada. And uh we moved to San Francisco to go to better schools um so that's you know quite extreme for for most families to to make such a big move um, to, to go to a better school um yeah. so yeah How did you feel
0: that, about that move?
1: Uh, well, I was nine years old, so i didn't um you know it was quite fun to to go to san francisco and um I don't remember having a say in it necessarily but um mm-hmm. but you know I, um I really enjoyed living in San Francisco, um, and I liked my school. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was um, I was positive about it.
0: I I'm I'm getting the sense that that sort of you know um you know my grandparents were 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 immigrants from from poland you know during the second world war and actually you know i i loved what you said about you know the importance of of knowledge and and education and that was certainly something they really sort of um emphasized for us you know as a sort of as a shortcut is probably the wrong way of putting it but as a as an important way of starting to become part of 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 you know this culture here in the UK of starting to build that sort of social capital, and I think it's it's really fascinating, you know, hearing about. Um, so, so the guy who owned the national dollar stores was that? Mm-hmm. Is that a sort of great great grandfather back, or how far back is 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 that person?
1: Exactly. Yeah, he's a great great grandfather. Um, so yeah. his name was uh, Zhou Sheng. So the surname was actually Joe, which is um, the it's a very common Chinese surname, like Chow. Like C H O W or Z H O U, any mm. sort of variation of that is the same surname. Um, and then, but then he became. Uh, so he sort of because he's of course with Chinese you say your surname first. So mm. um, so he he became uh, so Sheng. Or song um I don't know the pronunciation was his first name, but then that mm. became this the surname of our of our family yeah um and people would call it's sort of funny because um in he's he's got you know he's, he appears in newspaper articles um quite a lot, and he's sometimes he's referred to as Joseph Scheng, which is <laughs> which is really funny because of course there's there's no joseph there it's just um he's just Joe um I'm just
0: remarking on how. You know, our our ancestors went through some quite incredible experiences, and I mean, to mm. to have then, you know, not only come across to America, but then set up this thriving business can't have been easy for him.
1: He wasn't formally edu- educated, um, but apparently he spoke uh, English like like a native. Essentially, he was um, in his late teens when he came from from Zhongshan in China, um, which is in southern China. Um, sort of north of Macau, it's part of the, the Guangdong region, near Guangzhou. Um, and uh, so he spoke uh, apparently um, in, you know, English without an accent, sort of flawless English. And, um, and he ended up uh, uh, donating and starting quite a few schools. So he donated to a school in, in, his, in his hometown, which I've, which I've been to, um, in his sort of home village in China. Um, so that's called the Zhou School now it's a it's a primary school with about um six hundred uh, children in it wow <laughs> and um and then he has um, he he started the chinese uh, cultural center i believe it's called in Oakland uh, across from san francisco um, he donated to you know countless um, sort of uh, churches and social organizations um, chinese language schools um, he has a um, a professorship at UC Berkeley um, that, that he, he created um, and I think there's a scholarship at um, a business school at, at Berkeley as well um, and they're just you know the list goes on um, yeah, wow. so he's you know it was it was such a value for him um, yeah amazing yeah.
0: Madeline, we've sadly come to the end of the interview and at this point I always turn over the microphone to uh, my guest and I ask them to basically talk about anything that's on their mind, on your mind, and I'd love to uh, do the same for you at this stage.
1: I think this goes back to what we were talking about of sort of getting the sustainability message across. Um, So it's really um, encouraging everybody who's listening um, as as a person and if you have um, a business or any a, a say in a business um, to, to go out there and do something um, that's good for the um, for social sustainability and for the environment. Um, and, you know, I think it can be really daunting um, to look at the the, <laughs> the climate crisis that we're in all the different crises that we're in and just think, just get a bit overwhelmed and feel bad about it and feel a bit, um, there's even a, a certain level of uh, hedonism just saying, well, you know, if the world's going to end, we might as well enjoy it. And I am going to fly to wherever this is and, and, you know, have my holiday. Um, it's just, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, do something about it. If you can, as I said, you know, you can't, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to win all the, you, you might buy organic meat, but it's in plastic. You know, there's something that's, it's just, we can't be, we can't be perfect. But I think, um, as an individual and as a as a business um, you know do as much as you can essentially and I think that's that's my message is, is really you know pitch in and whatever you do will make a difference um, and to keep the the optimism optimism and sort of re- relentless optimism
0: thanks for listening to the outrageous impact show if you've enjoyed it leave a review and tell your friends